Now a reading from Gospel according to John, chapter 14, verse 1 through 6. Don't be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house has room to spare. If that weren't the case, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And when I go prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me, so that where I am, you will be too. You know the way to the place I'm going. Thomas asked, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpreting these words. We Christians have a major problem on our hands, and it has nothing to do with these first six verses of the gospel according to John themselves. One need not look around at the landscape of Christian, Christendom very thoroughly or very far to see how we have taken a fundamentally incorrect interpretation of these verses, particularly verse 6, lifted them entirely out of context and created basically two theological nooses with them. One noose for ourselves and the other for those who claim no faith or other faith traditions as their path through life. We feel choked by these verses ourselves with our own noose if we're operating under these false understandings of what we believe these verses say because in our hearts we really don't want to see others burn in a literal burning eternal hell of torment because their beliefs are different from our own and yet Many of us have believed that that is what these verses say. So, for those operating under the misapplication of these verses who happen to be Christians, being faithful often means spending at least some time and emotional energy sweating the eternal fate of atheists, agnostics, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, Sikhs, and anyone outside the Christian faith. No one I know sweats the other person's fate because they set out to be malicious. In fact, quite the opposite. But not only is it unnecessary to sweat their fate, as I plan to point out today, but it is in fact not what the author of the Gospel of John, or Jesus for that matter, intended. I don't believe that this understanding is faithful to the verses and the scriptures themselves right here in the Gospel of John, nor to the overarching way and teachings of Jesus elsewhere, nor do I find this understanding in keeping with the general trajectory of the whole Bible, both the Hebrew as well as Christian scriptures, sing an entirely different song and tune. Christian author and minister Brian McLaren has suggested that many Christians seem to operate as though the verses we read a moment ago read as follows. And just to be clear, he is suggesting this paraphrase is a very flawed and <laughs> incorrect reading of the verses, yet this is the understanding how many of us seem to read them, though it doesn't, uh, the verses aren't written this way. We pretend as though Jesus said, well, you should be very troubled because if you believe in God but not me, 
You'll be shut out of my father's house in heaven where there are a few small rooms for the few who get it right. Then Thomas said to him, Lord, what about the people who've never even heard of you? Will they go to heaven after they die? And Jesus said to him, I am the only way to heaven. And the truth about me is the only truth that will get you to life after death. Not one person will go to heaven unless they personally understand and believe a clearly defined narrow message about me and personally and consciously ask me to come and live in their heart. But you notice that is not what we read. Reverend Dr. Gerard Sloyan, Catholic priest and theologian, in his acclaimed commentary on John's Gospel, reminds us that the book itself is a collection of writings assembled by and for the church. John, you see, is a church document assembled by the church, authored and arranged by the church much later than the other three gospels we read and call synoptic gospels. The book is not a book of history, but rather the book of John is a book of lessons for the church by the church that takes scenes from Jesus' life and uses them as teaching units. And the verses from John 14 we read are a pivot that follow a long discourse in chapter 13 where the disciples, or as my friend Leonard Sweet loves to say, the disciples. (laughs) Since all of the Gospels take great delight, even John, in pointing out the many ways the disciples are often clueless when it comes to understanding what Jesus is trying to teach them. In chapter 13, before we read these verses, I want you to know it's very crucial to understand that the disciples are feeling a range of emotions as Jesus is trying his best to counsel them and help them understand that he will soon face death and he will soon face suffering. He will soon be departing. Are you with me so far? And that means that these first verses in chapter 14, and actually a bulk of chapters 14, 15, 16, and even 17, serve as an announcement officially that the disciples will be okay, even after Jesus faces death and suffering and whatever it is ahead of him that he's feeling. He's offering a pastoral, teacherly word of comfort not to the world and not to the universe, but to his beloved closest friends and pupils, his disciples. And so these words in John 14, 1 through 6, are not given as a universal sermon for all of humankind by Jesus once and for all for those outside the faith. They're given, they're offered as words to his dearest, closest friends and pupils, and they're meant to say that life is a spacious place. Did you hear that? And everything is going to be okay. These are the words for those already inside his inner circle. You already know the way. I've taught you myself. It's me. It's not some stranger. You followed me this far. Follow what I've taught you even after I'm gone. It's as simple as that. And it's not even about heaven. If you look at the Greek wording of this text, it's not about an afterlife. It's actually about a way of life on earth, a way commended and taught by Jesus. This was his specialty. So the church, with a capital C, meaning all churches, have done very little to help with this massive misuse of these verses. 
And thus the idea that in order to be faithful, one must mentally, emotionally, and spiritually accept the notion of Christian exclusivism and exceptionalism, thus condemning all outsiders of the faith to a literal burning hell. It's not acceptable. In fact, it's spiritual malpractice. Now, evangelical as well as mainline churches like ours, Catholic and Protestant alike, have done our usual thing, and we've preached and believed this, these verses from our normal, how shall we say, comfortable theological neighborhoods. I recently ran across a book in my studies written by Ronald Allen and O. Wesley Allen, Jr., two unrelated people with the same last name, entitled, The Sermon Without End in which they actually use the metaphor, or is it a simile, I never know, of neighborhoods to summarize these theological approaches that various factions within Christianity tend to use when, you know, preaching their messages and living out their faith. Those who typically fall into classical evangelical camp are often described here in this text, Sermon Without End by these unrelated Allens, as the neighborhood of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Most of the time, the classic evangelicals feud because to them the Bible is literally the word of God once and for all time, imperfect as it ever gets, and therefore stands as the key to orthodox belief and practice. And so therefore, science and philosophy and culture, well, they need to stand down. And in the weird moments where the Hatfields and the McCoys actually come together, in this metaphor of evangelicalism, it's kind of spooky because they unite for the purpose of exclusion and condemnation and straightening out the world. And they have done so around these verses historically in order to condemn everyone but their own tribe to a burning pit of eternal torment in a place they call hell. And this is an abuse of human beings, obviously, but also of these verses intended to serve as a pastoral reassurance to some very worried disciples, never intended to be universally applied as a condemnation of outsiders. And then mainline Christians. I'll pick on us. According to the unrelated Allens in the book, The Sermon Without End, they, we typically fall into either one of two other neighborhoods the classic liberal neighborhood or the post-liberal neighborhood. Now, liberal here is referring to the free-thinking theological stuff that goes on, not political, by the way. But classic liberals in the theological realm of neighborhoods in this model, they, they use the metaphor, the Allens use the metaphor, the apartment dweller neighborhood. And classic liberals, they tend to often pay rent to landlords like reason or science or other empirically credible means of measuring truth. And so these apartment-dwelling classic liberals often work hard to use these credible means like science and reason and philosophy to provide rational explanations for faith and faithfulness. That sounds well and good, right? But struggle to do a very good job of making our message known. And the post-liberal crowd within the main line and even Catholic traditions um, according to the sermon without end, well, we usually preach our message from inside what the, uh, the authors call the gated community. In other words, the approach here by some in our tribe is just to ignore the culture in which we live in favor of building a whole church world for ourselves, telling our own people, look, 
these stories in the Bible, they're our stories. The words we use in here, they're our words. The world will catch on if we just keep being faithful in here, just inside our nice, comfortable, gated neighborhood. And of course, you see the implications of this kind of an approach. In the end, the Allens, authors of Sermon Without End, suggest, and I agree, a post-apologetic approach to living out our faith and sharing community with others in this world that reaches beyond the limitations of these approaches. And in a post-apologetic approach, the proclamation of our message is much more conversational. In other words, we should choose to believe that the world actually might have a thing or two to teach the church and that we might not have all of the truth to ourselves. Is it possible that the culture might have something valuable to teach the church? Is it possible that we could be faithful and simultaneously admit we don't know everything that there is to know? Is it possible that we could be solidly, firmly, deeply Christian and at the same time welcoming, appreciative, even affirming of other faith traditions? And get this, of people who claim no faith at all? Yes. Yes, we can. If we've been paying attention to the trajectory of Jesus' teachings and the trajectory of all of the scriptures for that matter, then we'll notice by now that there is a spaciousness, there is a wideness, there is an inclusion of those who follow different paths as well. If you look at the trajectory of our scriptures... You'll notice how things begin and how they end are not always the same. In fact, they seldom are the same. Moabites, for example, are thought to be bad and were not allowed to dwell among God's people. Then comes the story of Ruth the Moabite, which challenges the prejudice against the Moabites. People from the land of Uz are thought to be evil, but then comes the story of Job, a man from yeah, Ooze, who was the most blameless man, we are told, on the face of the earth. No foreigners or eunuchs were allowed to be in the inner circle of faith, but then comes the story of an African eunuch who was baptized, and not only baptized, but welcomed fully into the life of the church, which, by the way, serves as an excellent reminder for those fearing immigrants and people of varying sexual or gender identities or expressions today that we are called to include and not exclude. God's people hated Samaritans. But then, what does Jesus do? He's always stirring up trouble. He tells a story that makes the Samaritan the hero. Better than their ultra-religious elite. So, the question is, Will we continue this trajectory of inclusion and expansiveness and grace? The question is, can we trust that God is big enough? Can we trust that our neighborhood and our neighbor outside the gate might even know best for themselves what it means to be authentic and faithful? Can we trust that truth is limitless that God is limitless, that grace is free, 
that truth doesn't belong to any one group in its entirety, though we all experience our part of it, and it is boundless, and truth is unbridled and unrestrained by all constructs of human religions and human prejudice and practice and cultural norms. And here in John's Gospel, Jesus is using the metaphor of heaven to remind us all of this, which ironically is the opposite of how many of us have previously viewed this text. Jesus here in this story reminds us that heaven has many rooms. If it is the, is the conventional wisdom, the, 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 the way, the folklore that we've all been told that, that this is an exclusive verse, why would Jesus have begun with spaciousness, with graciousness, with roominess? in this place called heaven. And this word for heaven is not referring to some other place, but the same place where human beings dwell here on earth, where we intend to build beloved community here and now. And Jesus' movement and motion of ministry were always grounded, by the way, in this life. Less than 5% of the times the word heaven or kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, those words are used. Less than 5% of the time is he talking about somewhere else. 95 plus percent of the time in all of the gospels he's talking about here. How we treat one another. So heaven is both otherworldly and thisworldly, but Jesus never wasted his time, for the most part, worrying about some other place. He was teaching about making this place beautiful. And it is a spacious, gracious, roomy place he desires for us to live. Not a narrow, confining, punitive place that he wants us to build. A place where there are many rooms, not just a few VIP suites. So we can trust God. That is the grace in this text. We can trust that this life we have been gifted is a spacious place when we get it right. We can trust that we do not possess the corner on the market of truth. We can trust enough to live our lives as faithfully as we possibly can for us in the way of Jesus while embracing a post-apologetic method of conversation with the world back and forth, realizing the world has some wisdom to teach us too along this journey. We can trust God. We can trust goodness. And we can trust the neighbors we are commanded and called to love to know best how to live out their life authentically and faithfully and still remain deeply Christian. We can trust that good, moral, ethical atheists, for example, have something important to teach us about what being faithful looks like. We can trust that the devout Muslim, Jewish, Sikh, Buddhist, and Hindu, that person from every other tradition, has something invaluable to teach us. And we can trust enough to see ourselves as conversation partners and not competitors in this life. So, is Jesus the only way? That question raises another question, actually. The only way to what? The only way to what? If you want to learn about the eight noble truths or the fourfold path, Buddha is the way, not Jesus. If you want to learn about submission to Allah, Jesus can't help you, but Muhammad can. If you want to talk about the triumph of the proletariat over the controlling elites or the relation of id, ego, and superego, talk to Marx or Freud. 
And if you want to learn about how to get rich quick without work or how to get healthy immediately without diet or exercise through faith and prayer, there are some prosperity evangelists who make some pretty bold promises, but not Jesus. If it's the way to wealth through no money down real estate that you're seeking or the way to marriage without risk or the way to world domination through terrorism or military conquest, Jesus is not your man, nor does he want to be. But if you're asking about this vision, he called the kingdom of God coming to earth, what that means, how that can happen, how we can participate in it, Buddha, Muhammad, and all the others step back respectfully, and Jesus steps forward. And this amazing metaphor of the kingdom of God, this was Jesus' specialty, and frankly, his preeminence in this field is far more secure than LeBron James in the game of basketball or Bill Gates in the computer industry. True, the religions associated with Jesus have often had a pretty poor track record of seeking the kingdom of God or even speaking about it meaningfully. And that's really a subject for another sermon. However, on this Holocaust Remembrance Weekend, let me just say that Christian exclusivism has gone to seed far too long and even driven anti-Semitic readings of the scriptures promoted authoritarian political leadership and been complicit in many a hate crime when we pretend to have the whole truth in our own hip pocket. This is not what I believe Jesus intended. And the text from John 14, by the way, was never intended to answer that question, is Jesus the only way for all of humankind? It was intended to answer that question for his disciples. And it was a pastoral assurance for those that follow in the way of Jesus as well that if we operate in the gracious spaciousness of a one-world family vision, living in a house with many rooms, we will be okay. We will all be okay and better than okay because all of those who earnestly seek to be authentically faithful in the way they know best will be more than okay. And the place we all seek to dwell is actually one. It's such a spacious one. It's such an expansive one that even folks, I think Jesus was saying, who haven't been paying all that much attention, like the disciples, won't miss it when we get there. This is the lesson John 14, I believe, teaches us. I believe we can trust this. I believe we can rest in this. And this is why I believe we can be both deeply Christian and welcoming of other faiths at the same time. Thanks be to God. Amen.